I'm going to read to you from Philippians 1, 7 to 11, carrying on from last week. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Is anyone here an interrupter? Yeah, a few of you. I grew up with three brothers, and I'm not sure if in my life, growing up with them, more than 1% of my sentences were ever completed before someone else jumped in. And before you pity me, I do the same thing to them. So when my family get together, like no one finishes their sentences, someone starts, someone else jumps in, and that's how conversation rolls. And in fact, when you, when you work like that, you don't really even notice it. Even harder than talking with an interrupter, I think, is talking with a detourer. So you're talking to someone, they're kind of explaining something to you, they're on a nice, clear track, and then suddenly they go off over here, start on some other thing, and then they come back to the original thing, and if you're like me, sometimes it's hard to remember what the original thing was that they're coming back to. So if you like your conversations, if you like your arguments to go in a nice straight line, then I'm sorry, but you are going to find Paul quite difficult because he has this real habit of breaking off. I like to think that he just gets really excited and he just can't help himself. Just hang on a minute, I've just got to tell you about this thing and then we'll get back to it. And sometimes there's almost a sense that while he's writing... It's almost like he hears a question or a challenge that he knows he needs to address before he comes back to what he's saying. And in a way, the first part of our passage today is a bit like that. So Paul's been telling the church that he prays for them, and he's about to tell them what he prays. So we looked at that last week. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. So he's, he's telling them, I pray for you guys. He's about to say what the prayer is. And then it's almost like he hears someone say, who are you to pray for them? Or why are you so obsessed? And so he breaks off and he says, no, it is right for me to feel like this about you. And so he explains to them why, why it's right that he feels like this. And only then does he come back to tell them what he actually prays for them. So we're going to look a little bit at why Paul feels this intense affection for the church in Philippi. And then we're going to look at what he prays for them and what that means for us. So what builds this kind of deep affection, this deep connection in the church between brothers and sisters? What kind of thing can make the friendship that Paul is talking about here? A very long time ago now, Tim and I did a marriage course with Noah and Danielle in their house. And we watched videos of this American dude. <clears throat> and one of the things that I'll never forget was his advice for how to build a strong family. Go camping. 
because suffering brings people together. Now, I know some of you love camping. I've had my moments of enjoying it. But the first time I went camping, my so-called friend filled my tent with slugs. Last summer, some of my family were camping. In the summer, in July, and a massive storm literally blew their tent away. There's something about being tired and miserable, maybe a bit cold and wet, with people that you love. At the time, you hate it, but afterwards, we look back fondly, and we feel kind of united. At least that's the idea. But you know, Paul had really suffered in Philippi. It wasn't a camping trip. It was a lot worse than slugs and storms. It's interesting, often in Acts, we read of people really kicking off against the preaching of the gospel because it's hitting them in their wallets. So I talked a few months ago about the, the, um, in Ephesus where there was this like silversmith's union and their trade was suffering because they made a lot of money out of making idols and people weren't going to be buying idols anymore because they were worshipping God and because the, the church were preaching that idols were nothing, they were just man-made. So they all kicked off and there's this big riot. And in Philippi, we see something quite similar happen. So Acts 16 tells us what happens the first time that Paul went to Philippi and to the region that Philippi was in. And Tony talked to us a bit about it last week, about Lydia and her role in that. I just want to go through a bit of the drama that kicked off. So in Acts 16, we know that they met a girl, a young girl, who was being exploited. So she was demonized. And because of that, she was able to tell the future. And people were making money off of this girl, off of her brokenness, off of her bondage. And she's following Paul and Silas around, and she's shouting about them. And eventually Paul gets annoyed, so he turns around and frees her, which is an interesting response to being annoyed with people. He says to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And it does. And then verse 19 says this. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. So their trade is severely, they've just lost their income, but they, they paint it as a religious thing. They paint it as a political thing. You know, we're not, we're not going to be able to follow the customs of the Roman Empire anymore because of these men, when really it's these guys have just cut off our source of income. So what happens next? Verses 22 to 24. The crowds join in the attack, and the magistrates, instead of bringing order, instead of saying, hang on a minute, what, what is the charge here? The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. So they're beaten up by the crowd, and then they're stripped and beaten with rods. They're severely flogged, and thrown into prison, and the jailer is told to look after them carefully. And then there's this amazing miracle that takes place. So they're praying and singing hymns, which I personally think is a miracle in and of itself, because I think if I'd been beaten up by a mob and then beaten with rods, I 
don't know that that would necessarily be my go-to a few hours later to be praying and singing, but that's what they're doing in that cold prison cell. And then there's an earthquake. And you might say, if you're a sceptical person, well, you know, earthquakes happen. That's not miraculous. Earthquakes happen in the Middle East. But it doesn't only shatter the doors and open the doors, but it also opens all of their chains, which starts to go a little bit beyond the normal things that an earthquake might do. And there's quite a dramatic kind of sense of what happens next. So the jailer, who's been told, guard these guys carefully, he is so frightened about what will be done to him by the Romans for not doing his duty that he takes out his sword to take his own life. Maybe he thought that that would be a quicker, less painful death than the one that he would get. But just in time, Paul shouts out, we're all still here. We haven't gone. And the guy is saved. His life is saved. And then later on, we find that him and his whole household come to faith in Jesus and they're saved that way. So then what happens? Acts 16, 33. At that hour of the night, so this is all in the middle of the night in darkness, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had become to believe in God, he and his whole household. And then later on, we find out that after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. And then they left. So Tony spoke to us last week about how this church in Philippi that this letter was written to, how it got off the ground, how it started. And it probably started in the home of Lydia, this Gentile woman. And here we see the next steps in that relationship. So the brothers, which means the believers in Jesus, gathered in her house, and they were encouraged by Paul and Silas just after this dramatic prison situation that they'd been through. So once again, we see Lydia giving hospitality. We see the jailer and his family. They, they come into the church family in an extraordinary, stressful, dramatic way. And then they're involved in supporting and caring for Paul. And I think this suffering together... And the way that the, that tiny baby church in Philippi supported Paul and Silas, I think that suffering explains what united them in such a depth of relationship. Even though they weren't all in that cell with them, even though they weren't all beaten, they weren't all flogged, there was a sense of, of partnership, of joint endeavor, as a result of how they responded to the situation. So suffering can unite us in these deep relationships. But here's the problem with that advice to go camping. It doesn't always bring us together. Suffering with people doesn't necessarily cause that depth of relationship. In fact, suffering with people can be the end of relationship. So I sit on the fostering and adoption panel for our local council. And it's probably the only council meeting I go to where it's okay to cry. And each time I go, we spend a whole day. And we hear lots of different stories of children 
and of their families of origin and of the families that they're joining. And we hear a lot of stories of suffering. And many of the foster parents, many of the adoptive parents have been through really difficult things themselves. In fact, when we're looking for people to adopt or foster children, one of the things that we look for is an experience of trauma or loss. Because we know that people who've been through those things are often better equipped to help children deal with those things. Often we know that that means that they'll have developed a resilience that can be a really powerful thing for a traumatized child to come into. And so some of the families that I've met, some of these foster families and adoptive families have gone through really difficult times and out of it, they've come out stronger, they've come out with love, and they're ready to share that. But that's not the full picture, because also when I'm sitting on that panel, I hear stories of the families of origin of many of those children. I hear about people who themselves suffered, were abused, were groomed. And then as a result of those things, they've then gone on to harm their children or neglect their children. And often I read those stories and I think, oh, I, if I went through that, I, I can understand how you would get to where you got to. So when I'm sitting on that panel, I'm hearing lots of people, lots of stories of suffering. And in some people, that suffering has produced incredible results. Resilience, love, compassion. But in some people, that suffering has actually broken and devastated them to the point where they can't look after their children. So suffering doesn't automatically lead to strong relationships. It doesn't automatically lead to good character. So let's be a bit more specific. What kind of suffering together produces the partnership that Paul is talking about? And I think the key there is suffering for Christ. And, you know, Paul suffered a lot for Christ. It's interesting that right really early in his journey as a follower of Jesus, actually he was told very clearly that that would be what he would go through, and he did. And as we go through Philippians, we're going to hear a lot about that. We're going to get to learn from this guy who really has credibility on these things. We're going to learn how to do it. We're going to learn how to go through hard times for the sake of the gospel. And we know that in Paul himself, the suffering that he went through did produce good things. In Romans, he says, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. So we're in quite a mixed church here because we're in a really mixed city, aren't we? So we come from different backgrounds. We've got different stories. We know that there are people in our church family who have suffered for the sake of the gospel. We know that there are people who have been cut off from their families, who have had to give things up that they treasured for the sake of the gospel. And we know that also there are many of us who haven't experienced that. I think the worst that I've ever really experienced is a little bit of ostracization, maybe. And that was probably mainly in my head anyway. But one of my good friends, 
she was beaten by her husband just for coming to church. But still she came. <laughs> so in that context where our experiences of suffering for the gospel are, are quite different, some of us have done that or are doing that, and some of us not yet, maybe not ever in this life. What does it mean for us to suffer together? How do we do that? And I think Lydia is quite a good example of how we can do that because she wasn't in the prison cell with them. She wasn't in front of the magistrates being beaten. But you kind of get this sense, I think, that her and the rest of that church were waiting for their release with bated breath. And when they were freed, that's where they went, to her house. And they were cared for there, and they then encouraged the believers. So how can we, who haven't suffered for the gospel, or who aren't at the moment, how can we serve those who are? We can comfort them. We can show hospitality. We know that in some of his letters, Paul actually is just super practical. So when he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and my scrolls, especially the parchments. It's just like really practical stuff. He's freezing cold. You know, there's no central heating in a Roman prison. There wasn't even food supplied. So he's cold, so he needs his cloak, and then he wants his books. And that's the way that he was asking Timothy to help him. So we can help really practically. There are practical things we can do to help our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted for the gospel. And as we do that, it builds that depth of relationship. It builds that true Christian partnership of the kind that Paul describes that motivates this depth of prayer. So Paul's gone off on this tangent, which I think is a helpful one. Just explaining to them how he feels about them. And he writes some strong words. He calls God as his witness to how much he longs for them. And he says he longs for them with the affection of Christ. In the AV translation from the Victorian era, it says this. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Christ Jesus. So the bowels of Christ Jesus. In our language, in English, we might say things like, I've got a heart for that situation, I've got a heart for that person. Or we might just say, oh, I feel for you. There's a sense in which we, we all feel like our emotions, they're not just in our heads, they're somehow in our bodies. And so we, we, we use our heart to talk about that. Actually, in, in this culture, they sometimes use heart in that way to sort of talk about inner thoughts. But when they were talking about feelings, they talk about the gut. So if you felt compassion, you'd feel it in your gut. And there's so many examples of this word being used about Jesus. So Jesus himself feeling in his gut for the people that he met. Some of them will appear on the screen behind me. He saw the crowds and he had compassion on them and that compassion word there is he felt it in his gut because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. He felt it in his gut and he healed their sick. In Mark 8, 
he has compassion for these people because they've been with him for three days and they've got nothing to eat. And later in Mark, someone brings their son to Jesus because he needs healing. And he says to Jesus, this, this demon has often thrown this boy into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And that word there, take pity, is the same word. Have a gut for us. Have a gut feeling of compassion and heal him. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. So we've translated it in different ways. Compassion, take pity, his heart went out to her. But actually in all those cases, it's that same that gut response. And so when Paul's saying the compassion of Christ Jesus, that's what he's talking about. There's so many examples for us of what that looks like. Where Jesus saw people, he saw their physical need and he saw their spiritual need and he felt it. He wasn't just carrying out instructions, go to places and if there are sick people, just heal them. But he was actually feeling. And then responding and just in case any of you are tempted to think well that's nice Jesus and then there's the mean father he's the hard one I want to think about the story of the prodigal son which Jesus tells to explain to us what the father is like and so the son has squandered his inheritance he's rejected his father in his father's house and he goes off and he lives his own life and it goes horribly wrong as it does and so he decides that he'll go back to his father and he'll just live as a servant in his father's house. That's, that's all he really can expect, but that, that'll be enough. So Luke 15, he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. It's that same word. His father felt it right in his guts, right in his inner core. His father was filled with compassion and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Which, by the way, is a really undignified thing for a Middle Eastern man to do. To run in public, adults don't do that. And especially like a, a wealthy, high-status man, you don't run in public. Other people do the running for you. But the father is so moved with compassion right in his guts. He runs towards the sun. There's such a powerful image there for us. If we feel like we're far from God and we might make the decision, I'm going to turn, I'm going to turn back to God. And we might imagine that that's a really long process that will take a really long time because we're so far away from him. But he sees us and he runs. So that compassion of Jesus is the compassion of God, the guts of God to us. Jesus was moved in his gut. And Paul is saying that in the same way, he has that feeling for them. That feeling that Jesus had for the people that he had compassion on, Jesus has that for the church. How did Jesus respond to that feeling? With action. So when we read these stories, all the different ones that I just shared, when Jesus meets these people, whether it's a big crowd or an individual person, and he has compassion on them, when he feels it in his gut, he does something. He doesn't just move on and then say, oh yeah, I had that, had that funny feeling. He does something. There's healing. Sometimes he teaches them. 
that's what they need, and he brings that teaching to them. He rescues them, but he acts on that compassion. And out of great compassion for us, he went to the cross. So when we say, if we want to say, like Paul, that we have great affection for each other, we're not talking about a little fleeting feeling, a nice, maybe warm fuzziness for a moment or two. If we want to claim that we have this kind of affection for each other, then we're talking about something really deep. And we're talking about something that is expressed, not just an internal feeling, but something that has a result. The interesting thing is, I mean, we talked earlier about the different practical ways that we can come alongside people who are suffering and we can demonstrate our affection for them, our love for them. But at this point, actually, Paul has nothing material to give these guys. It's widely believed that the church in Philippi financially supported Paul, in fact. So he's got no money to give them. He's got no stuff to give them. He can't return their hospitality. You can't host someone in a prison cell. So having said that compassion leads to action, what does it lead Paul to? It leads him to prayer. Prayer is not just a way for us to kind of tick a box of our feelings and feel like we've, you know, acted on how we feel. Prayer is action. Prayer is a response. It's a way of demonstrating and working out our affection for each other in the church. If we can give, then I believe we must give. Not all of us can, but all of us can pray. Whether we're free, living the life of Riley, or in a prison cell like Paul, we can pray. And Paul knows that prayer is powerful. It's so important that he almost feels like he's got to justify why he prays for them. So prayer is a way that we can help each other. For some of us, as we pray for things, it actually might lead on to other practical ways of showing our love. But not always. We may not always be able to. But we can always pray. And it's clear from the start of this letter that Paul regularly and fervently prays for this church. So partnership in the gospel is developed by supporting people who suffer for the gospel and in that way being partners with them in that. And it produces a deep emotional connection. And that connection leads us to pray. So what kind of things do we pray? Let's look at what Paul prayed. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So love abounding, love on love. But what is love abounding in? In knowledge and in depth of insight. And what is that knowledge for? 
to be able to discern what is best, to be pure and blameless. So being full of love and living right are not opposite ends of a spectrum that as Christians we need to position ourselves on. They're intertwined. Love needs knowledge. In God, love is not just a feeling. Love is discernment. And so that's what Paul is praying for these really dear friends of his, that they would have great love, that it would be intertwined with knowledge and with deep insight. And in this prayer, there's like this series of connected events. This, so that this, so that this, so that this. So let's look at those events. So he prays that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that they're able to discern what is best. So that they are pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So that they're filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ so that God is glorified and praised. And that's the end goal of this prayer. Paul loves these guys and he knows that the absolute best good for them is that their lives would lead to the praise and glory of God. So what does this mean for us? I think at one level, as we've looked at, this gives us a model for how we can develop those real deep relationships in the church. And it also teaches us how we can pray for each other. So Jesus gave his disciples the Lord's Prayer, which taught them how to pray for themselves. And here, Paul's giving us, and there are many other examples in his other letters, he's giving us a way to pray for others. Some of us maybe feel like we don't always know how to pray for people. We don't feel like our words are as sophisticated as other people's. We can just pray these prayers. If we don't know what to pray, we can pray the prayers here. In many ways, the Psalms were like the prayer and worship book of the Jewish people. Don't feel pressure to always make up your own words. We've been given words. And so practically speaking, this is a prayer that we can pray for each other and for the church across the world. But it's more than that. It's a prayer that we can pray, but also within it, I think there is really deep theological truth and hard theological truth because it's a reminder of our ultimate purpose. Last week in Sunday school, Hannah asked the kids if they'd heard of a catechism before, and I thought she said cataclysm, and I was like, that definitely wasn't on the plan. <laughs> but we were actually talking about a catechism. So for most of church history, not everybody was literate. Not everybody could read. In fact, most people didn't have access to the Bible in a language that they understood, and certainly not in their own homes. And so catechisms were developed as a way to help people to know the essentials of the faith. And so, you know, you basically learn question, answer, question, answer. And a good catechism actually takes all of its content from scripture. So you're not kind of adding something to the faith. 
teaching people how to remember scripture when they don't have access to the Bible in the way that we do. And a bit like liturgy, which I think can be amazing, a catechism is dead if it's just performed for the sake of it. If we just say the words without meaning, it doesn't do anything. But actually there can be real power in learning those things and letting them go deep. Remembering truth. So there's the Westminster Catechism, which is a bit old now. Um, and it asks this question one, in fact, what is the chief end of man? So what's the main, what's the point of mankind? Women are included as well. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I'll share with you a bit more of an updated one. This is the more recent one called the New City Catechism. How and why did God create us? God created us male and female in his own image to know him, love him, live with him, and glorify him. And it is right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. That's not really very now, is it? I want to live for me. I want to live for my glory. You know, all of us have an answer as to what we're for. Or we hold our hands up and say we're not for anything, it's just chance. Every religious worldview offers an answer to that question, what is man for? And secular atheism says we're not made for anything, though it's nice if we're nice to each other. few years ago, as a joke, I think it was a joke, it might have just been quite rude, uh, Johnny and Hannah bought me a jar opening tool for my birthday, um, because I struggle to open jars, <laughs> and uh, it's actually genuinely really useful, I use it a lot, uh, because Tim often does jars up like ridiculously tight, <laughs> and then I've got this special tool, and, and you just sort of put it around the jar, and you turn it gently, and the jar opens, and I think it is made for people in their 90s, but I'm rocking it in my 30s, late 30s, uh, and it's very useful. But it's not useful for anything else. So I can't use my jar opening tool to cut through a cucumber. I can't cook with it. But when, when I know what it's for, it works really well, and I use it a lot. So what are we for? What is the purpose of a human being? What is the function that we were designed for? That if we find it, life will go well. In this lovely prayer that Paul prays, that's just full of big, beautiful words, there's a really devastating challenge to our ego. It certainly really challenges mine. It's hard to swallow. Are we content to live for the glory and praise of God? Does the one who made us have the right to demand that of us? Some people say that not only does he have the right to have demanded that from us, but actually we just wish he'd taken it by force and never given us free will in the first place. But the Bible teaches that he designed us in his image to know him, to love him and to glorify him. 
in the same way that the masterpiece of a painter kind of glorifies them. We're told that we are God's masterpiece and we glorify him. And I have to be honest that I find that really hard because I would quite like to live my life for me. I would quite like me to be glorified by the way that I live my life. I'd quite like me to be praised. But that's not what I'm for. That's not my purpose. And actually, when I live like that, it just goes really, really wrong really, really quickly. Because I was made to glorify him, and so were you. And if you're finding that hard, as I find it hard, then... Remember that image of the embrace of the Father. That even as you're feeling like, wow, I'm a million miles from where I should be. So much of what I do with my time and and with my life is for my own glorification and not God's. As we turn towards him, he runs to meet us with compassion. So don't take that as a condemnation, but take it as a challenge. If you find that idea difficult, don't gulp it down with a big glass of water chew on it because you need it so in closing what would it look like to live for his glory what would it look like for you to live for his glory On one hand, it might look a bit like death. Looked at a certain way. Looked at another way. It looks like complete freedom. And we know that actually the gospel can appear completely differently to different people. Looks like death or it looks like complete freedom. Complete freedom from the judgment of other people. If I'm not living for my own glory, it doesn't matter what anyone thinks of me. If I'm living for the glory of God, then I'm freed from the judgment of people. I'm freed from the need to display my status through all these ridiculous ways that we do it. I'm freed from that. So can I leave you with a challenge this week? to really chew that over, to really meditate on what it would look like in your life to live to the glory and praise of God. And as we do that, can we be honest with ourselves about the cost of that? Let's be real about the pain of that. And let's be real about the joy of that. So the last thing we're going to do, if you would stand to your feet, please. Um, if you're able, we're going to pray this prayer for each other. So this prayer that Paul prayed for the church in Philippi, we're going to pray it for each other here. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you want to join in, that would be great. Um, and, well, I would say close your, don't close your eyes, but you can't anyway, can you? Because then you won't be able to read it. Um, what I'd like to encourage you to do, if it's not going to completely freak you out, is as you pray this, just look around. Just, like, we're not here as a kind of 
random collection of individuals this morning, but we are more than that. So we're doing this together. So as we pray this prayer, just look around at some of the people in the room because that's who you're praying these things for. They've got faces, they've got names, they've got stories. Some of them are guests and we might never see them again in this life. But we're going to pray these things for them anyway. So if you would um, pray this along with me. And this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that you may be able to discern what is best. And may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen.